Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. Mm-mm. I feel like we could just go home right now. We don't need to do anything more. Uh, the ring of God's word this morning is going to be from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is going to be verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord, church. So brothers and sisters, I do not address you as people who are spiritual, but as people who are worldly, mere infants in Christ, those guided by the flesh. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, you know, I follow Paul, and another says, well, I follow Apollos. Are those not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? Or what, after all, is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each their task. Let me pray for us this morning. Uh, Lord, as we open up your words, may you open up our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. May you guide us today. May you bring unity in us as we declare your name together. May we receive every good gift and every good promise that you have set before us. And all God's people said together, amen. NBC at church. Have you ever noticed how many people who own a dog think they have the best dog? Luckily, there is a group of people who are putting an end to that philosophy. They call themselves the group We Rate Dogs. Very original. Their whole task is if you send in a picture of your dog, they will rate your dog on a scale of 1 to 10, which is very fun. But I think the next level of fun is that sometimes when people submit pictures of their dogs, they will actually reject them. And they will actually argue, this isn't even a dog. Let me show you a couple of examples. Okay, This is throwing down the gauntlet by far. This post just says, really guys, we only rate dogs. This is a fluffy flower mouse. One of the largest I've ever seen. Please only send dogs. This one is, uh, we only rate dogs. This is clearly a fresh loaf of ciabatta bread. Please only send dogs. We only rate dogs. This is clearly Jesus. Please send in dogs. This isn't complicated. This is an African seal. We only rate dogs. Please only send to us dogs. <laughs> I think I can't keep a straight face on this one. This is a Tyrannosaurus Rex. We only rate dogs. Please only send us dogs. And this is my favorite one, the last one. We only rate dogs. Please send our condolences to whoever dropped this perfectly toasted marshmallow in the grass. <laughs> Thank you. We only rate dogs. 
One of the reasons people have gained momentum with this group is because there is a group of people out there that are willing to say, we do not see what you see. Everyone needs someone who can say to them, I do not see what you see. In Corinth, this group of believers, they get to experience Paul, an early Jesus follower, who looks at their church and says, I do not see what you see. And when Paul speaks this, he doesn't speak it comically. He speaks it with critique. The people look at themselves and they say, we are spiritually mature people. And Paul looks at this church and goes, what you see, I do not see. You see spiritually mature people, and I see spiritually immature people. And in this third chapter that you just heard me read in Corinthians, this is Paul's definition of what we are calling in this series a tough talk. Now, if you haven't been with us the past couple weeks, we've been in a series that we're calling Tough Talks. And in this series, we've been talking about how having healthy, difficult conversations are a part of a life of following Jesus. And in the first three weeks of the series, we've been talking about how do you go about hard conversations when you have either done something wrong or someone has done something wrong to you. Now we move into the second part of the series. I like to call it the little more dicey part of the series because we're not talking about wrongs. We're actually talking about what do you do with people who see things differently than you? How do you go about tough conversations with those who disagree with you, who are different from you, and it is creating tough conversations? Paul is addressing a group of people who are in disagreement with each other. And Paul actually tells us what he sees. He describes it in verse 3. He says, what I'm seeing is still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, ooh, ooh I follow Paul, or another says, hey, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? What is Paul, they're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each task. Paul gives you a description of a group of people who are falling into the temptation any time that you are at odds or disagreement with someone, that there is an obstacle, a temptation, a mode of operation that is very human to fall into. It's almost as if we revert back to our middle school selves when we find ourselves at disagreement with someone. We want to form teams, we want to form camps, and we want to form cliques. In Corinth, there are just different fractions among the church. People are dividing themselves up by different thought leaders, by different people that they are behind. They're dividing themselves up in ways that's causing division. 
And this is just a story of like what every story has ever been built off of, right? Like you got different groups coming from different perspectives, coming from different places, right? Like this is what they built the story of Hunger Games off of. You got all these different districts. This is what they built Harry Potter off of. There's Hufflepuffs. There's Gryffindor. There's the Jets. There's the Shark. That's not Harry Potter, okay? That's a different movie. There's the Jets. There's the Shark. I could give you a thousand different movie examples of how this is just the story of human nature over and over again. We want to divide up and we want to group up. Historically, in Corinth, we knew that there were some benefits of actually grouping up with other people. And they weren't actually that far away from why we like to group up ourselves. In Corinth, there would be uh, just kind of this culture that would be like, one, I got to find the right people to be with. And then those people need to know, you're my people and I'm with you. Two, groups were ways of actually moving up socially, politically, occupationally, And then three, you were looking for groups of people who could help you move up in incremental ways. In other words, what believers experienced in Corinth isn't very far from what we experience today. Groups equal safety, security, and acceptance. If we group up, we're safe, we're accepted, and we're secure. And if you were to look at early Christians in Corinth, you would see through the letters, there's some pretty awesome things happening with this church. I mean, there are expressions of the Spirit that some of us are like, I don't even know what to do with that. There's a lot of knowledge that's being there. There's wisdom that's happening there. And they are looking at their lives and being like, we are spiritual people. We're mature people. And Paul goes, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that's what spiritual maturity looks like because the true litmus test is not mentally what you know or what you experience, but it's your mentality with other people and how you go about them. Paul's going to use two words in this passage, words that he has redefined up to the third chapter that are very helpful for us to know. He says, when it comes to your mentality of people, you are acting like people in the flesh. That you're being very fleshy about it. But rather, as people of the flesh, mere infants in Christ. When Paul uses the language of flesh, he's not talking about like, oh, it's terrible to be a human. But he's saying that there are instincts There are remnants of who you were before Jesus that are still left in you. You are reacting the same way that the world wants to react. And the second word that Paul uses is spiritual. You want me to address you as spiritual people. In chapter 2, Paul defines what he means by that. By spiritual, he's not meaning like someone who just says like, hey, I recognize the transcendent. I subscribe myself to a God or to God. Paul's very clear. When he's saying spiritual maturity, he's saying one who is led by the Spirit of God. One of the temptations of the church in Corinth was to take Jesus 
and mix him with the philosophy or the politics or the psychology of the day. It would be as if Paul would be saying, be very careful. We're not mixing a little Jesus with Fox News or CNN. We're not mixing a little Jesus with Oprah Winfrey or Jordan Peterson. We're not mixing a little Jesus with your favorite radio broadcaster. Paul is saying people who are spiritually mature are being filled and led by the Spirit. And that is what they should be guided for and known for. In other words, Paul's saying, you may see yourself as a spiritually mature person, but if you're walking around, grouping people up, causing division, constantly arguing, you are surely an immature believer, not a mature one. For what we at least know, Paul could be writing this letter five years after he speaks to this group of believers. And it's as if Paul is saying, hey, I've been away for a couple of years, and the main thing I'm hearing is not the ways you're maturing in Jesus, but I'm hearing about the names of those who you follow or the camps that you find yourself in. And if we sit with this story, this story should make us nervous. Right? This isn't just like history that's happening for Corinth. This is reality that can be happening to any believer. How many times have you seen someone who their life is marked by the groups or camps they associate themselves with more than Jesus? If people looked at your life would they look at your life and say that is a person that's marked by following Jesus? Or are you known by the group of friends that you associate with? Or the denomination you're a part of? Or the theology that you're against? Or the political party in which you are with? Or the neighborhood that you live in? Every day the world gives us new ways to divide up and size up the world. Even in Christian history, we have to be very honest with ourselves. We've been very reactive to divide ourselves up, right? Like we have divided ourselves over and over again into different factions, into camps, into denominations. You know, even in churches of Christ, this church, historically, like when churches of Christ started, the whole point was to bring people together. It was to actually come together and not let denominations be the thing that divided us. And now in some ways we've joined that movement of being another expression or division. We don't just do this with matters of faith. We also just do this in life in general, right? Like I'm mindful it's baby blessing day. Like, we can just do this with parenting. You know, watch. What type of parent are you? Are you pro-vax or are you anti-vax? Are you for formula feeding? Are you for organic food? Are you for public school or homeschool or charter school or private school? Are you pro-spanking, anti-spanking? I would have loved to have a thought in that one, but I didn't get to choose. <laughs> there are ways 
to go about conversing with our thoughts and beliefs that are helpful, but also grouping up, camping up, can be hurtful. It's hurtful when our loyalty to a group is our highest form of morality. That being owned in this group, saying I'm a part of this group above morality, is dangerous. If groupthink is the only way that we think and we don't think for ourselves, it can become dangerous. It can be dangerous to be dismissive of other groups if you don't find yourself within that group. When we divide each other up into groups and teams and cliques, we tend to produce what Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians 3.30. He says that when you group up, one of the things that you're going to find is you're going to find the temptation for jealousy and quarreling. You know, it's really interesting. If we took a poll in this room right now, and I just asked you the question, what do you think is the biggest threat to the church right now? I'm sure we'd get some really interesting answers, right? I think some people would say, you know, it's the decline of people's attendance at church on Sundays. I think some of us would say it's Christian nationalism. Some of us would say people don't know the Bible as much as they used to. Some people would say it's hypocrisy in the church. Some people would say it's postmodern relativism, which is just a you handle your life a certain way and I handle my life a certain way and we're all good here. It's interesting, though, when you flip through the New Testament, if you're to ask that question, the answer would be this. Quarreling. This is a word that's nearly used in every New Testament letter as a group of believers are trying to work through what's it mean to live as a Jesus community. And it's really interesting. When you flip through the letters, I mean, there's everything from like theological. So think of like Romans, like there's doctrine we're trying to work out here and there's quarreling and there's just personal and personality quarreling that's happening. Think like second or first Timothy that's happening. That word quarreling, if you're like, I'm not sure what that really means, here we go. Quarreling is when you are looking to make things more complicated. It is bickering. It is complaining is your number one contribution to the church. When you are argumentative in your posture. And this word jealousy, we may think of the word jealousy of like, oh, you know, they have something that I really like. But when this word is used throughout the Bible, at least in the New Testament, the connotation is this angry religious fervor that leads to fighting and arguing. So one of my professors used to say in school, he used to be like, this just basically means you're a Christian who's a jerk. <laughs> Do you know anybody like that? They're so convicted that they want to get their point across that it doesn't matter who they hurt, who it affects, or how they cut other people. The main point is to get the point across. An angry religious fervor. And this is the pitfall. When we give ourselves into jealousy and quarreling, when we make our posture about this, Paul tells us what we miss. 
He tells the group in Corinthians what they miss, and it's the same thing that we miss as well. He said, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and indeed you're still not ready for it. Bottom line, what Paul's saying is he's saying, when you quarrel, when you divide up the world by camps and you don't associate or work with anyone else that isn't in the place you feel safe, Paul's saying you're missing the opportunity for maturity and fullness with God. That's the cost. That's the opportunity that we miss every single time. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. If we spend all of our time fighting and debating, we miss how God is forming and discipling us. I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying you shouldn't have convictions. I'm not saying that you shouldn't dialogue with people and share different perspectives. I'm not saying that you can't disagree with people. But what I am saying is there's a warning for us that we are to not dodge, dismiss, or disconnect ourselves from other relationships simply because they find themselves in a different group than ourselves. So how do we allow the Spirit of God to guide us to not just divide up our world, to be so focused on different groups or camps that we find ourselves in. I found the work, as I was studying this summer, of uh, a man by the name of G.A. Quattrone, who is this communications professor that I think hits a nail on the head, that I think can be helpful for us when thinking about how do we interact with people who we disagree with or people who we have a different perspective than them. And he basically says there's three steps you go through when you meet a person who is different than you, and then it becomes obvious, okay, we are not on the same page, or I disagree with this person. He says we do three things, and here's the three things. First is we categorize, second we characterize, and then the third is, and if we're lucky, we do the third, correction. Categorization. When you meet someone who disagrees with you or has a different perspective than you, your brain is doing overtime. And your brain's main goal is, I don't want to do overtime. Stats have even said, like, you can handle about 150 relationships in your life. And after that, you're maxed out. And one of the ways your brain cuts the work in half is you find ways to organize people and find shorthand for how to figure out people. So we naturally put people in different categories in our lives. We assign prototypes. We assign stereotypes. We make judgments off the first impression, and we kind of divide people up into the world with it. The second thing that we do is then we characterize. We assign traits or characteristics to people after we meet them. Let me try this for you. I'm going to give you a list of a couple of different just identifying marks of a person. If I say someone in this room voted for Trump, you immediately just had some traits come to mind. 
If I say someone that you're meeting is vegan, you have some traits that come to mind. If I tell you someone is the oldest sibling, if I tell you they work out every day, if I tell you they're a millennial, that, that one got you, right? You had some traits that immediately came to mind. Our brains tend to work off of what we've either seen or experienced to put traits with that person and organize them in our brain. And the third step, which I would argue is the invitation of Jesus, is to open our lives to correction for what we have categorized and characterized with a person. If we're a follower of Jesus, we recognize every human being is made in the image of God, which means we have to hold very loosely any categorization of a person, right? People are super complex. There's a reason that they are the way they are. We take time to get close and ask ourselves, would Jesus assign this categorization and the characterization that I'm giving this person right now? How often do we let ourselves just be wrong about our first impression of someone? Are we the type of person that's like, nope, I just need five minutes with them and I know exactly who they are, I know what their agenda is, and I know what they're doing. How often do we just ask people, would you clarify what you meant by that? Because I'm confused by that. How often do we get close to people who don't share our same understanding because we're like, man, I want to understand how they see the world the way that they do because I don't see the world that way whatsoever. I remember uh, one of my most uh, impactful corrections uh, was one that uh, I was uh, not looking for. And uh, if I knew it was going to be a moment of correction, I wouldn't have been looking for it uh, whatsoever. Uh, I remember uh, one of my first jobs that I got in college was uh, we were to create environments for students. And I'd gotten hired for this job, and I was going to lead a team, and I was going to have a boss. I was very excited about this boss. And last minute, I just get this email, and it goes, you no longer have that boss. You have a new boss. You have one week to know him, and then get to town with him. When I met this boss, uh, we were not on the same page. Okay, uh, We weren't even in the same libraries. Okay, It was very obvious very quickly. We were not jiving together. He would say things that would just agitate me. I'm just like, what? Why you guys say it exactly like that? He would make decisions that I did not agree with those decisions. And when topics came up about the world and he shared his opinion, I did not share the same opinion over and over again. And you could just tell there was just tension that was here. And then one day I'm sitting across the table with him at lunch and we're trying to talk through our working experience. And he says to me, <laughs> it's bold. He says, have you ever considered how your lack of experience working for a boss who is black may be affecting you in our working relationship? And I remember when I heard that, I said, where do you get off to say such a thing to me? Just casually. He used to have this joke about me all the time. He used to say, Zane, you need to realize you are so white, you think ketchup is spicy, okay? 
You just need to call it as it is. And I remember being offended. I said, I don't think I have anything to hear more from you. And he goes, then can you hear me as a brother in Christ? I'm like, okay. All right, you're going to throw the Jesus card on this one. Sure, I will hear what you have to say. And for the next 20 minutes, this man opened up my world. He said, every time you question what I wear when we go to a faculty meeting, because I don't have a button-down shirt that's tucked in and starched the way that you think it should look. When I go into meetings and I use different inflection with words or I slang my words and you roll your eyes because you think it implies something about my intelligence. When you judge my professionalism based off the volume of my voice. Those are all expectations. That because you've predominantly hung around white leaders, you expect me to hold. And that's not me. Just because I carry myself differently, Zane, does not make you a better leader at all. That's a tough talk. And no matter what you think about some of the comments, in words in which he shared with me, I felt the conviction of the Spirit of God that day. In essence, it was an invitation to say, let the Spirit reform your categorization and characterization of me. Go sit with God and rework how you think about the world. And now looking back today, I am so grateful to even understand the weight and the willingness of him to even share those words with me. And the only way that happens, the only way the invitation of maturity happens is if we come close to those who we don't agree with or we find ourselves in different places from. Church, staying in groups and camps will not cultivate a life of maturity for us. And there's some days where I want to hear that, and there's some days where I'm like, I don't want to hear that. To be formed with people who disagree with us or people who see things different than us is difficult, it's messy, it doesn't go well, and quite frankly, in my opinion, it's embarrassing. And we have to be willing to enter that space if we follow Jesus, we will be called to share life with those who either disagree with us or do not find themselves in the same groups that we always find ourselves in. And Jesus shows us, different does not always mean dangerous. Make no mistake, God does use groups. Groups in of themselves are not a bad thing. When God creates humanity, he literally says, you can't do it alone. When God initiates humanity in Genesis, he says, I want you to multiply. I want you to create cultures. I want you to create different people groups. When Yahweh God wants to reveal himself to the world, he chooses not one tribe. He chooses 12 tribes to reveal himself. When Jesus wants to redeem the world, he gets a group of men together, 12 disciples, and leads them. 
When John tells you about the throne of Jesus, in which we will all be in front of one day, he literally says, there is people from every nation and every tribe and every ethnicity all bowing down before Jesus. God works through groups. It's why he's brought us to the church to bring different people together to show unity and maturity. The world will try to do it on their own. And Jesus' followers recognize that we know and claim we can't do it on our own. It's too hard. It's too impossible. But the gift of the Spirit, the gift that gives us unity, the Spirit of God will empower us to be able to be connected. In Acts 2, when the church is literally being initiated, one of the signs that the Spirit of God has fallen down on the people is they are able to talk and hear one another, even though they are coming from different places. And do not kid yourself. The Spirit can be as crazy and creative as speaking in tongues or speaking different languages. There's other ways to do it as well. The Spirit of God is just that good. Would you mind standing, church, as I bless us today? I guess to put it in the words of your elementary teacher, God really loves group projects. God loves group projects to the point where most of his projects are group projects, not because of what we can get done together, but also because of the people we become when we are together with the Spirit of God. May you go this week being one who does not contribute to division, but may you be one who is with the Spirit, who's bringing unity, and is learning and living and loving other people, no matter where they are. May you go with the Spirit today and be in peace. You're dismissed.